Eastern mysticism of one sort or another, it made all the sense in the world. And in the deep mystical part of it, of course, there was no sin. There was no evil that, that you were committing with the kind of thoughts or actions that are just normal human stuff. Hey everyone, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling, and I'm here with my, my what should I call you? I'm, my family member, <laughs> my virtual niece, <laughs> um, Madison, good to have you, Madison Margolin, and uh, I'm happy to introduce a fascinating subject that she's been delving into through a book called Exile and Ecstasy. Uh, growing up with Ramdas and coming of age in the Jewish psychedelic underground, which I, uh, of course, I do know about what you've been doing, but I'm still surprised because I have <laughs> no idea of what that is whatsoever. And I'm Jewish. <laughs> but uh, let's start with, uh, I, I mean, you know, uh, we have, an, an, Madison does a wonderful podcast on Be Here Now Network, everybody. You can check that out as well. What's it called? Set and setting. setting, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, that last. Who was the last person that you talked to? I, I, I listen or watch part of that. Edo Cohen, I think, yeah. was the last episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was great. I, uh, I loved him. He was very, uh, he, uh, coming from quite a, a lovely place of equanimity, actually, in all aspects. So that appealed to me. Yeah. Yeah. He's an amazing integration therapist for anyone in the audience listening. You don't call him, you should look him up. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Let's go back. So just for context, everybody, Madison's father, whose name is Bruce, famous attorney in Southern California, fought for uh, equality for marijuana over many years part of normal the organization that did a lot to get it where it is today really and yeah he dedicated his his life to that aside from really helping people out who uh who were busted for pot and uh he i bumped into him when he came to india when i went back there ramdas also had an effect on him uh that helped him to uh, find our guru neem karoli baba and that's where I met Bruce, and so we've known each other forever. And uh, but even beyond that, we've lived on the West Coast, uh, where Bruce is from. And uh, when I finally moved out, so we had a very much of a family kind of uh, situation. I spent a lot of time at the house. We do all sorts of satsangs and community gatherings and so on. Ramdas spent a lot of time at the house as she reports in the book. So there we are. I mean, you were just this little tyke popping around. How the hell did you, I mean, and you had all this influence of, of the psychedelic culture for sure. Right. And you had, uh, the influence of, uh, Eastern mysticism. So, uh, tell us what was going on. I mean, I you know I read, and of course I know some of this was a little bit of 
rebellion against what dad and the family was doing. But yeah, talk about your perspective as a, as a kid back then. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I knew that what my dad and his friends, yourself among them, that what you guys were doing was different was because I had the reference point of my friend's parents from school. And growing up in West LA and, you know, in Beverly Hills, you know, you have a lot of pretty like, kind of like square in the box kind of people. And then meanwhile, at my dad's house, it's everyone smoking weed and they're coming over for kirtan and they're dressed up in their you know, like people are wearing saris or bindis or everyone has a Hindu name. And I knew just, again, based on that reference point of my friend's parents, that what was going on at home was not quote unquote normal. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if there hadn't been such a reference point, I really don't think I would have known because I've never known anything else. Right. Like that's, that's just how I grew up. And, um, you know, you could say that I, on some level, I took it for granted, right? Like a kirtan was never a word that I had to learn. It was just something that happened all the time. Um, and on the other hand, you know, I think because it was what my parents were, what 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 they sort of put on display and and uh, raised me with, I I had a level of rebellion of questioning, like how authentic is this or. Um, well, you, you know, you guys are so spiritual, but like, why are you screaming at me behind the scenes? Um, and, and every, every parent yells at their kids, you know, I'm not just calling out my own parents, but, um, you know, I, it's, so I, I had a lot of questions growing up, including like, you know, what, what really is the philosophy of Ninkroli Baba and how is that actually like put being put into practice on a very real, authentic moment to moment basis. So mm. Mm. Yeah. But then, I mean, yes, you had celebrated different Jewish holidays, like, uh, you know, and I was party to that from time to time, and certainly <laughs> with your dad. And, uh, but I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't have any idea of your gravitation towards Judaism. And the way in which, and it's wonderfully done, by the way, Madison, in the book, in terms of really connecting, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, really connecting the mysticism, mysticism of the, from the Jewish tradition with that of Hindu, Buddhist, etc., etc. And, I mean, Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba, there was no philosophy whatsoever because he didn't do philosophy except for one thing which is there is only one thing going on in this universe and it manifests in many, many different ways so that people, and all of us have a different um, propensity to one thing or another that makes sense to us in terms of following a path to self-discovery. So how did, where'd you get to the, Jewish thing. I know it's part of it, but it was more ritualistic or, you know, cultural. It wasn't the way that you are experiencing it now. Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of, a lot of the people I grew up with in satsang who are Jewish or at least come from Jewish backgrounds didn't necessarily dive into like Judaism, right? Like they dove into Hinduism or Buddhism or, you know, other Eastern, Eastern traditions. And I, it, like I said, I, I'd say my dad was probably 
you know, of the, of the Jews in the satsang, like, he's definitely not a, I wouldn't call him, he's, my dad's very religious in certain ways. Like, he has a very strong relationship to God. He's not, like, an observant Jew, right? Mm-hmm. But even, even so, he was weirdly religious about certain Jewish things as well. Like, I don't know why my parents had me in a Jewish day school, preschool when I was younger, why they were even a part of a conservative shul to begin with. Like my dad was, you know, like made sure my brother had a bar mitzvah cause he's a boy and he had to have a bar mitzvah. Like, I don't, I don't know where that was coming from. Like maybe it was his own sort of guilt around the way he was conducting his life and knowing what his parents would have said if had they been alive or something like that. Um, but you know, again, going, I always felt very Jewish. Like I just was very aware of my Judaism or my Jewishness, like just being a Jewish person, being a Jewish child. Again, maybe it was because I was in a Jewish school at a very young age. Um, and I was getting that kind of religious education. And then again, coming home to Kirtan and Hindu and, and whatever. Um, and I also had a weird sort of like obsession with Anne Frank. And again, Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Like I, oh. I loved, I read a lot of child, like children's Holocaust literature. I, I've obviously read Anne Frank's diary. Um, I remember in school I had to do like a living biography book report and I was Anne Frank for that book report. Um, and in, in later work, like much, much later, you know, within the past couple of years, I've had different people say to me, like, maybe I was, my soul was in the body of somebody who was in the Holocaust or something like that. So I do think like on a very like soul level, like I, I just feel very Jewish. And so I always said to myself, like, here I was kind of learning Hebrew and not really knowing how to read it and whatever. And I was like, okay, like I can read Hebrew, but I don't know what I'm saying, but Hey, guess what? Like, here's all these other Jews who also maybe like learned Hebrew and never connected to it. So, oh, they're going to go read uh, or sing songs in Sanskrit, like as if they know what what those songs mean. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, Maharaj, you said like, it's all one, like it's all just like different names of um, different names for God and different ways of connecting to God, both in Hebrew and in Sanskrit and other traditions as well. But that's really what led me on this more Jewish spiritual inquiry. And again, you know, with Hindu, with um, Hinduism, like it's not, that's not an official religion, but with like the Hindu thing, it was like, there wasn't, there, it's not a religion. And so you can sort of decide how you want to engage with it, both in terms of your practice and discipline, as well as the morality and ethics that come with it. Whereas like Judaism, I saw as something that we had to answer to, right? Like Passover is coming. Like, what are we going to do about it? Like my parents did have a certain honor um, toward Jewish traditions and like a responsibility toward observing them, you know, again, not Mm. in an orthodox way, but I did see it as this very grounding thing that actually brought my family together um, when there was very little else that did bring them together, given, you know, how, how much um, chaos there was in the household. (laughs) I attest to that chaos, by the (laughs) way, everybody listening. Uh, Yes. But, um, you know, you talk about they put you in some conservative Jewish school or something, you know, in the formative years, right? parochial school. Mm-hmm. I, and, you know, so that helped you gravitate towards the depth of, of what Judaism has to offer. I was also, put, I was put into something that was called Talmud Torah in those years. 
and uh, it ruined my entire educational life. Okay, the teacher was, well, he had uh, PTSD beyond because he had been in the camps and he had tattoo on his forearm. And he, as I said, was completely polarized, isolated, angry. And that, we were just little kids, right? And uh, as being a sensitive little guy, I absolutely uh, recoiled from this vibration in such a way that, and, and we were conservative family as well, went to High Holiday and all that. And I, as soon as I got to be a teenager, I absolutely ran away from this because of the deep polarization that the exoteric part of it, like Christianity, like fundamental Hinduism, the concept of if you're bad, you sin, you're going to get yours. Just watch it, you know, that concept. And then gradually moved over to, wow, to, you know, Eastern mysticism of one sort or another. It made all the sense in the world. And in the deep mystical part of it, of course, there was no sin. There was no evil that, that you were committing with the kind of thoughts or actions that are just normal human stuff. So look at us. We went in completely different directions, went through the same thing, indoctrinated in a, in a conservative Hebrew school. This was more than conservative. It was like yeshiva, actually, Talmud Torah in Montreal. So I find that fascinating that you went in, in that direction. Um, and it was fulfilling to you. Yeah, I mean, first of all, my family in no way was imposing Judaism on me. I mean, again, a little bit of doing the holidays here and there and Shabbos, but like I was, I and I also, I hated Hebrew school. You know, I, I really didn't even like it to begin with, but I was a good, I was always a good student. So I was like, mm. I was good at it, but I didn't necessarily like it. But I did know, you know, my, the way that I learned about God, which was really mostly from my dad, I mean, my mother would like look to God for the like, protection because she's afraid of the world. And my father would looks to God as through connection because he's, he really does have that kind of soul. And I think Maharaji was a huge way, a huge influence on him also in, in sort of having a more loving relationship with God, but to also see God in everything and see everything as manifestation and expression of God and divine energy you know, that's a very Jewish concept too, right? Like you say this Shema, you know, at the end of it, it says God is one. Um, and so that even though I hated Hebrew school, I didn't like, I, no one was shoving Judaism down my throat. If anything, the rebellion was like, what was I going to rebel into the hippie thing? Like that was also what, you know, was being presented to me. And I wasn't going to become an atheist because I just have too much belief in God. And so really what the rebellion, I guess, on my end is like almost like forcing my parents to look at themselves. And I think this is the, po the issue of the post-Holocaust generation is, is um, so many people are, were presented with a style of Judaism that was just so tainted by the Holocaust. And mm. 
and I'm and a good example there, having exactly. a teacher who came right out of it, right? And so, of course, you want to run away from it, but I'm I'm a two generations out of that at least, and so for me, it's it's I don't have that same level of like Holocaust stuff, but really just you know, again, seeing the drama of my family and associating that drama with the with the Hindu thing and, and knowing that there was like a groundingness in Judaism that I wasn't getting in my father's household otherwise. So, and again, I think also my mom being from New York and relating to New York Judaism was a little bit of like this tether I had outside the California hippie scene. Um, you know, and again, we can, we'll probably talk about this in the interview, but, um, you know, me, when I was eventually living in New York and doing my reporting in the Hasidic world, really learning from a lot of people whose concepts of God from a Hasidic perspective were actually really similar to the concept of God that I was, that I learned about through my dad. How so? You know, just like, so the, the Baal Shem Tov, who's like the founder of the Hasidic movement, yeah. um, you know, he was, I, I've talked to Christian Nazi even about this, like he was a type of like Jewish sadhu, right? Or, yeah, you know, you could, yeah. and, and this, his whole thing was like, you don't need rabbis or you don't need like complicated study to connect to God. Like you can just go out into the forest or the fields and just talk directly to Hashem and find, like, just notice that God is everywhere and in everything. And it's not, doesn't have to be mediated by all this other stuff. Uh-huh. Right. Right, and that's the direct, the directness is 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 the comparison. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but uh, before we go there, even though I like you know, chapter one, the rebellion of not being here now. <laughs> so Ramdas was hanging out at the house, and you were trying to figure out ways not to be here now. Okay, I like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I. You know, be here now was such a catch-all phrase. Like, it didn't mean anything in a lot of ways. You know, it's just yeah. like, I didn't like what was going on. I'll just be here now. Just be here now. Like, and I was like, what What does that even mean? And especially when the people who are telling you to be here now are the people who are Way far it. from being <laughs> anywhere now. Right. They're far from me. They're, yeah, they're <laughs> far from being anywhere now. And they're also like the reason you don't want to be here now. Yeah. It's like very like what do you do with that it's like it ruins the most basic component like the most basic tenet of mindfulness which is just presence and so i i really struggled with it and i'm i'm still learning how to be here now you know like to come back into my body and yeah yeah you know uh a story i've told before but i don't think you know it so i'll tell it to you i was with ramdas before he died in the summer and you know, being the producer that I am and trying to guide all of what he was doing in a way that took most of the work away from him in, ter- uh, in, in terms of those kinds of, of decisions about how he was sharing, you know, his being. And one morning I got up, it was breakfast, and I, oh my God, I really have to talk to him about this thing. And and, and I ran up the stairs to his bedroom. You know, I knew he was getting ready to come down for breakfast. And I went in. He was in the bathroom and he was shaving. He was Zen shaving. Because he was being very, very, very meticulously one-pointed. And I came in with this energy, right? Boy, we got to get this done. And he just looked at me 
and with those big baby blue eyes and everything in my head, you know, it was like uh, the engine just ran down into nothing. <laughs> Suddenly there was nothing. And I looked and I just was present in that presence, which is be here now. And I even said to him, so you're still pulling this be here now stuff on me, are you? He laughed. <laughs> but it was a, I mean, he, this, it's an iconic saying from Ramdas and an iconic book. But the reality is uh, by that time in his life, he had really gotten deep into just being present and, uh, and inviting other people. And in my case, in that moment, I had no choice. So, choiceless, be here now. Um, yeah, do you recall any anything from when you were a kid with when Ramdas popped over? Here and there, like I remember him being around. You know, um, yeah. you know. Probably my most vivid memories were um, him doing this the marriage ceremony of my dad and stepmom or now ex stepmom yeah. <laughs> um and uh when i was a teenager going to visit him in hawaii and i wrote about this in my book how my mom and i were fighting and i had this thing where i would like flip her off by like scratching my cheek with my middle finger and so she we get <laughs> to Ramdas and she she told on me and like she just like brought all of our drama to Ramdas and you know it's like he is you know like for all intents and purposes like a therapist right that's like his original training yeah and I felt it was so it was just so embarrassing like this like we're going to visit Ramdas and like it's so classic of her like this is <laughs> this is like what we're going to talk to him about is like how I was misbehaving <laughs> and he obviously didn't care that much but he did when we were leaving like he. He waved and like flipped me off with the, doing the finger cheek <laughs> yeah. thing. And so like everyone has these stories of going to Hawaii and like, you know, having like these spiritual moments with Ramdas yeah. that are explicitly spiritual. And I would say this was, this was also a very like spiritual moment in, in a less obvious way of getting flipped off by Ramdas. Mm. Um, because like he really just like, diminished my ego in that moment you know it was just like you think you're this like like clever teenager and actually like fuck you too but like in the sweetest most loving way mm, yeah no oh, that's great great story love that <laughs> i can't believe he did it uh, <laughs> um but back then in those days and and er, well earlier than those days um and this of course you you do reference in in the book but uh, there was two rabbis, Zalman Schachter and Shlomo Karlbach, that were close. Ramdas was close with, and was it Zalman? I think Zalman had, had the psychedelic experience. I don't know if Shlomo did, and uh, and that sort of opened up a door, really. I mean, for me, just knowing that opened up a door. Way which I had not considered even going through in in any way whatsoever. Uh, what is your understanding of, of? Do you know much about what happened with with Zalman in particular related to Ramdas related to psychedelics? Uh, yeah, so Zalman came from a Hasidic background. Um, I think he was originally part of the Lubavitch Chabad, Chabad Lubavitch movement. 
Um, and he, you know, he kind of got like, I don't want to use the word kicked out, but like he, you know, he, he like ended up parting ways from Chabad and again, has like an Orthodox background, gets kind of involved with the hippie scene. I think he had even tripped with um, Timothy Leary and ultimately, you know, ended up becoming friends with Ram Dass and they, I'm, I know for a fact, they like did acid together and they were under his talus and, you know, Ram Dass <laughs> writes about this in his, in being Ram Dass in his oh, yeah. memoir. Yeah. Um, how Zalman was like one of the most kind of like loving expressions of Judaism that he'd ever experienced. Mm. And, you know, I think Ramdas um, coming to terms with like his Jewish incarnation, right? Like he also was put into like this Jewish body and what's that about, you know, gives, gave permission or, you know, like at least for my dad, I, I've written a lot about, you know, beyond just my book, I wrote a, an article specifically on Ram Dass's Jewish legacy. And I think it, it, at least for my dad, it gave him permission to really like acknowledge his own Judaism. Like, well, if Ram Dass is doing it, I can do it. Right. Um, mm. I, you know, I met somebody in Svat, which is sort of this like mystical Kabbalistic city in Northern Israel. And First of all, all the locals were like, "Oh yeah, Ramdas visited and he learned Kabbalah with the oh, artist really? David Friedman, and wow. he said it was so spiritual for him." But this one guy, um, who who was like a Buju from LA, and went to this talk that Ramdas gave at American Jewish University in 1994, and Ramdas was talking about Shabbat and like observing it on some level, whether like as a mindfulness practice or something. And this guy is like, well, if he's doing it, I can do it. And he became an Orthodox Jew from that. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's just it's just funny how that kind of comes full circle. Yeah. Yeah, no. It's pretty amazing. Reverse. It's Yeah, you, you really went into a reverse thing, you know. We were all deeply in the Eastern, into Eastern mysticism. And you grew up in it and then... Boom, you went exactly the opposite way. So. Well, I don't know about if reverse is really the word, opposite way, where it's like coming full circle. Yeah. Because like finishing the job a little bit, because it, it was like you guys went the opposite way, right? Like you guys all went to India, like you left the whole Jewish thing. And I, you know, re-explored it, but it's like from the perspective of growing up in the satsang, I think it, it gives Judy, you know, it's like you kind of have to leave home to come back home. And so b being able to see like the foundation of my own relationship to even Judaism through kind of the philosophy of, or, or to, I don't want to say, you say it's not a philosophy, but like through the spiritual like modality of what, um, you know, I was taught through my, from my dad through, you know, his experiences with Maharaji, like, seeing see being able to see that in judaism really made mm. it like so much more meaningful no yeah yeah that's great that's really wonderful um <laughs> thinking about maharaji when i was first one of the first things he ever said to me when i first met him uh was where's your cross <laughs> through the translator and i'm thinking cross like i'm jewish I have no relationship whatsoever with Christianity or Christ or anything. I grew up in Montreal, which, you know, French-speaking, Quebec, 
and Catholic, you know, Catholic thing was the majority there. And uh, I, uh, I, of course, knew about it, but not in any participatory way whatsoever. And, uh, but, and this progressed through our, the, the year, the days, months, and years with Maharaji, because Christ was an important, uh, well, I shouldn't say it that way. Um, he used Christ as, uh, as, as the uh, similar, the similarity between Western religion and Hinduism in particular, because he would say, Hanuman and Christ are one. There's no difference, you know. And we learned all of that: the selflessness and uh, love, uh, compassion. You know, everything about these two beings was very much that. And um, but you know, he he brought it all together as one thing for us back then. But never, ever did he express anything about Jews in any way, reference-wise or anything. And the only thing we could think about was, okay, Christ is Jewish. So if you're coming from the one, there is only one thing going on. That's the only way I could describe why in the world, you know, (laughs) he never meant, and he's sitting, you know, it's a bunch of Jewish hippies, I mean, Listen, I don't know what the, uh, certainly half of the people, maybe, you know, I don't know. But in the early days, of course, Ramdas and Krishnas and myself, and, you know, we were were Jewish (laughs) and we were running from it. And here, you know, here we go. This is a completely new chapter in that. And um, the thing that I would like to understand more from what you're pointing to with uh, exile and ecstasy is this whole thing around the connectivity of psychedelics with uh, Orthodox Jews. Can you explain that all out to me? Because I still don't get it. So I was in journalism school and there were two kids in my reporting 101 class. And so every kid had to cover a different ethnic community and they gave me the Hasidim in Brooklyn because I was one of two Jews there. So they thought I would have easier access. And obviously I had, it was very hard to get access whatsoever. I don't look like a Hasidic Jew, especially <laughs> at that point, especially at that point in my life. And I, I even like got dressed up and it was the middle of the summer and I put on my tights and long skirts and whatever. But I, I left my nail polish on and I, I have all these piercings in my ears. And I, that was apparently a, a dead giveaway that, that I wasn't coming from that community. Um, but I, I did, um, you know, I ended up meeting a kid who was working at a kosher pizza place who was on the spectrum of what you would call off the derech or off the path, meaning he's, you know, grew up in that world, but he's sort of like has one foot out. He's exploring his own relationship to himself. Like, you know, you grew up speaking Yiddish, but he's not really like keeping religion the same way his parents are. And so he would talk to me basically. And he told me about going to all these side trans festivals and psychedelic 
parties and stuff in upstate New York and the Catskills and mm. all of the drugs he was doing, LSD and mushrooms and MDMA and ketamine and whatever. Mm. And um, a few months later, I also got connected to a bunch of people who were doing ayahuasca um, in ceremonies. Um, again, people from Orthodox backgrounds who um, were bringing sort of like Jewish music as the medicine music to ceremony. And I was saying to myself, you know, having had a bunch of psychedelic experiences of my own, knowing that it brings up so much of what's sort of like below the surface of our psyches, I said, like, there's no way that you can be having a psychedelic experience without Judaism coming up in some way. Um, Because it just brings up, it just brings up what's, you know, what's already brewing for us. Like how is Judaism factoring into their experiences? And so I, through my reporting and then ultimately through just personal friendships and whatnot, I, I gained access to this world and, you know, it's still very much a part of my life and close, you know, close to my heart. And a lot of my friends now are from Hasidic backgrounds, but, um, it was a bunch of, in those early days, it was people who were really experimenting with psychedelics and with their relationship to God and religion and the way that they wanted to hold the traditions. And so there's sort of two paths. There's, there's three paths that I've seen. Number one would be like the Red Zalman Shlomo path of your generation, where it was hippies who had done a bunch of psychedelics and kind of found spirituality from there. And they integrated their psychedelic experiences either through disciplines from India or, you know, following Reb Shlomo or Zalman, you know, through Judaism. What I'm seeing now in the Hasidic world is either people who are doing psychedelics and, um, you know, negotiating a type of religious practice that feels good to them, or even like rekindling their own religious fire. And, you know, so many people have said to me who come from Hasidic backgrounds, like it wasn't until I did LSD that I understood what the Baal Shem Tov was even talking about. Um, mm. And it's, you know, the last thing I'll say is that I, having done psychedelics myself on Shabbat and other Jewish holidays, you realize that Judaism really does offer a container um, and different rituals and ways of experiencing time and time out of time and sort of these psychedelic notions through Kabbalah and, you know, different practices that there is an avenue for altered experience um, and expanded consciousness and presence of mind and heart and soul. Um, without psychedelics, but combining psychedelics with Jewish practice can at least wake you up to that. So you can then like do it on your own, you know, potentially without needing medicine. So now these Orthodox Jews, they're next gen, right? I mean, we're not talking about older people whatsoever. Um, well, yeah, in the beginning, most of them were like my age or even younger. Um, now it's gotten so popular in the Hasidic world that older people are also looking at psychedelics to, you know, not because they're trying to break out of religion or anything like that, but because they want to deal with, you know, depression or trauma or improve their marriages or whatever. Mm. Right. Wow. Well, let's talk about... Uh, the one being that I can relate with in this whole infrastructure of Jewish mysticism uh, is Baal Shem Tov. So, I, I, you know, many people know who that is and 
coming from hundreds of years ago, but can you give us a little summary of who he was and is? Yeah, so he um, is considered to be the founder of the Hasidic movement. Um, he was basically a, an herbalist, you know, maybe tongue in cheek, I would say he was a shaman um, from sort of the, from, uh, from Ukraine. Um, I actually recently visited his gravesite in Mezhebez, which is in Ukraine and sort of like a rural area. Mm. Um, but, uh, and he, um, he would go out into the forest and in the fields and sort of just like talk to the grasses and commune with God. And everything he did was sort of like an act of service, an act of service for God, um, directed with like, sort of like divine intention. Um, and he, it was pretty controversial because like Hasidus in the early days was, you know, Judaism back then was really about like, bookish academic learning and you know it was very the, the term was litvish and in europe especially there was a lot of persecution already um of, of the jews and so it's like anything to not stand out was was good because you don't want to like call too much attention to yourselves and that meanwhile you have the hasidic movement that is all about like singing and dancing and praising god and like sort of getting getting high off religion and high off song and and moving. And so it integrates a lot of Kabbalistic and mystical practices that were more kind of far out than the sort of bookish academic Judaism that was popular at the time. Um, and so there was sort of this, the, you know, the, the Hasidic movement was always sort of a fringe movement, at least in the beginning, it gained traction. Now you have these Hasidic dynasties, right? So they, the concept of a Rebbe, you know, Baal Shem Tov or anyone who kind of came after him, um, it's like a guru. It's it's a sort of spiritual master who is just, you know, I'd, I'd say it's really almost almost exactly the same concept as guru. Yeah. I mean, this is a, my own personal thing. How do you get from there, from this being who was so free and not encumbered by the... Um, by good or bad, you know, us and them, all polarization. He was not, but like Maharaji, there was no nothing. There was no me and you, nothing. How do you get from there? And I guess it's the same answer as you could say about Christ. But how do you get from there, uh, particularly about, I don't want to raise a whole thing, but the thing, um, you know, with women is really awful. And uh, it's awful in many, many different contexts of many different religions, cultures, and so on. And and it's uh, thank God it's at least it's being addressed and it's coming around a little bit. But particularly, this is so rampant in in this community. Um, do you think that this that this penchant by uh, next gen people? for absorbing these ethnogens into their uh, belief system around, you know, Jewish Judaism or Jewish mysticism is going to affect positively this kind of an attitude? Yeah, I mean, a lot of women, a lot of moms who, you know, have 10 kids and so forth are doing psychedelics. 
with their husbands on their own, whatever, um, women who haven't had children yet, et cetera. Like it's, you know, there's a lot of psychedelic use in the Hasidic world at large. Number one, number two, you, I wouldn't say like, yes, I'd say, I'd say the treatment of women is questionable in any culture. Um, you know, is it worse in the Hasidic world than it is in like the ultra Orthodox Hindu world or fill in the blank religion or, or Mm. culture? Like, I don't, honestly, I don't think so. And being on the inside of having a foot on the inside of the Hasidic world and having worked with a lot of these women myself personally, you know, while it looks like there's, while it looks like there is kind of like oppression and maybe on some levels there is, or in some circumstances there is, there's Judaism also has a lot of um, tradition and philosophy around sort of like the divine feminine and kind of raising up the woman and empowering her. So again, it's just a matter of like how much, how much, you know, how much you practice, how much you see it in action. And I think it depends from case to case, but overall, you know, one, one very small example I'll give, and it's very esoteric, but I think it'll hold water here is there's this <laughs> concept of kolisha, um, which is like the idea that a woman, you know, men shouldn't be listening to women singing, um, singing like solo or whatever, you know, like it's like, and so I've yeah. been in ceremonies where a woman in Hasidic ceremonies, um, where a woman would sing a song. Um, and, and that's really revolutionary because again, these are men who've never even been around a woman who's singing by herself and they're, and the men are sitting there and they're just, they're taking it in. Maybe they're even crying. Right. Like they're, they're undergoing something. And again, it's, it's so from the outside world, it doesn't look like a big deal, but knowing the politics of that is huge. Um, and so I think that the medicine really is chipping away at stuff like that. Mm. That is fantastic. <laughs> really, really fantastic. I mean, yeah, that, that kind of a thing where you're not allowed to sit around where a woman is singing, you know, that is not happening in Orthodox Hinduism. Okay. So I beg to differ on that one. I mean, I think some of these things are, are, are more severe uh, than not, and in, in, in reference and in comparison to to other uh, cultures and religions. Uh, but the fact that this is happening is that's got to be a godsend, actually. Yeah, I mean, it de- it depends. Like, I'm not arguing for or against Kolisha. Like, I like appreciate. Like, I you know, if there's people who want to follow religious law. Um, or traditional religion. And again, there's, there's all sorts of debates around whether even halacha is or religious law is how it pertains to Kolisha. But like, I'm not, I'm not really like, I personally don't judge people who want to follow an ultra Orthodox lifestyle. It's just a matter of like, are you practicing what you preach or, you know, are you actually acting loving toward other people? You know, how, like, is it out of respect for women that you, you know, are, are abstaining or doing things that the rest of the world might think is disrespectful, but actually is coming from a place of, of wanting to put women in a higher esteem. And so there's, again, a lot of that, which it takes a very sort of like 
particular lens and perspective on uh, perspective and also knowledge of Orthodox Judaism to understand like where it's coming from, that it's not actually as fucked up as it might seem, but there are instances where it is really fucked up too. So plenty of them in my mind, Mm -hmm. but uh, again, you know, wanting to be positive in a very negative world in every which way as we are in right now, I think we should take what we can from these little moments, these little wins, you know, and it's wild to me that psychedelic uh, involvement by Hasids, you know, next generation has, it's like an eruption. It's like similar to what happened to us in the 60s. It's 1969 in the Yiddish speaking world. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it is. Yes. (laughs) I'm writing a story about it. Oh, you are? Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. And uh, now the other part of this is something that Ramdas was also very connected to that certainly influenced you was the Rainbow Festival. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Rainbow Gathering definitely changed my life. I love it so much. Um and I um I had a very Jewish experience at Rainbow. It's it, and Rainbow is really like this coming together of all the tribes. You know, you have like the home Shalom, which is the Jewish camp, or you have Krishna kitchen, which are the Hare Krishnas and you Mm. have Jesus camp and you have AA camp and you have Kitty village and you know, whatever you have all the different kind of nations of the world, all, you know, all the colors of the rainbow coming together Mm. um, for this temporary, you know, to create a temporary society and different national forest every 4th of July. And it's the closest thing to, um, you know, like 1960s style, you know, free loving hippies that you're going to get today, I would say. Um, definitely a dirty hippie vibe. <laughs> and um, yeah, don't call us that. <laughs> well, I'm not saying you guys are, you guys are maybe like more we bougie clean. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So, no, you know, like, like it's, it's really just like old school. It's, it has that flavor still. And, um, mm. And yeah, I, I mean, Rainbow really taught me about psychedelic integration because it's like, it's not just about taking the psychedelics, but like, mm. what do you do about it? And like, what do you build from it? And how do you treat other people? And so here's this society where there's no such thing as money, where there's no tickets, where you're, where you have to create a, you have to forge a relationship with nature, exist in nature, thrive in nature, build a kitchen out of wood, et cetera, and not leave any trace when you leave. And so a you're creating you know you're connecting to spirit in the form of nature you're connecting to community both your own sort of inner tribe whoever you're camping with as well as the greater rainbow society um and there's a lot of about like self-reliance and the currency being like are you a good person you know mm. are you are you helpful are you kind um what do you bring to the table you know maybe some people are really good at building things. And so they'll build the kitchen and then the musicians are, are playing music to make that process easier for the people who are building. And then there's people cooking in the kitchen and, and, and it's not, you don't go for, I mean, it's really fun, but you don't go for fun. You go to sort of like reset yourself. And so it's again, like the psychedelic notion of oneness, like how does oneness relate to my relationship with other people or to nature or to God or, um, to whatever. And so it's, it's really, yeah, like a, a psychedelic society. Mm. You know, it's really important that you, you spoke to just now is integration. 
I mean, the psychedelic experience is profound. And as Maharaji said, when Ramdas gave him this, by the way, I found out how, how large the dose was when I went to MAPS in Denver. Did I ever tell you this? How, how yeah. big? Yeah, so there was somebody, Leonard Peltier, Picard. I think. Picard. Was it uh, Picard yeah. who distributed it? Like large, mm-hmm. went to yeah. jail, came out. I mean, kind of far out guy. He, so he knew the White Brotherhood who had made the acid that Ramdas took to India. And he said it was six or 700 micrograms each hit. And he gave them a few. Can you imagine something like that? I was like, oh my wow. God. Anyhow, this is good for beginners is what he said. It allows wow. you to come into the room with Christ, meaning the divine. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, you, you can only stay a couple hours and then you have to leave. Ultimately, wow. feeding and loving people is how to get high. Um, but that, um, that was, that's such an important thing to consider, which he's really speaking to, is integration. What do you do when you have that experience, that ineffable experience? How do you come back into life where you're contributing to people around you, to the environment, to whatever, social justice, whatever is your way? How do you do that without saying, okay, I think every weekend or every two weekends, you know, we're going to have a ayahuasca ceremony and I got to get back to where it's going to tell me more things about myself uh, that I haven't, uh, that has not been revealed. There has to be a moment where there is, which is, by the way, and you know, we're Love Server members putting together uh, a summit later this year. This is two, 2024. Uh, that is going to speak to Ramdas's perspective, particularly about how to integrate psychedelic insight using the science of spirituality as a methodology of which you just have been speaking to um, Jewish mysticism, and yeah. uh, that's what you'll represent when you when you come to this thing. Yeah, I'm excited to give me more details still, um, but I. I would say that my integration philosophy is very um, tangible, meaning to say, take something from the psychedelic experience that you're, that is engages the senses, whether it's a smell, a song, something visual, um, a position that you do with your body, whether it's dancing or yoga or whatever, a, 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 a way of breathing, um, whatever it is, and practice that in your regular life. So, you know, especially in ayahuasca, for instance, I do a lot of child's pose. I don't know. It's just, it's like child's poses, you know, it's, it's prostration, right? Like you're really, you're, it's so much. And when I do child's pose in my regular yoga practice or in my regular life, it almost reminds me of that ayahuasca consciousness. Like my body remembers it. Um, or in my book, I talk a lot about hula hooping and my initial experiences with hula hooping we're all with, you know, MDMA or sort of different sort of psychedelic experiences. And you want your body and, and mind and soul to sort of remember that psychedelic consciousness in a way where you don't actually have to keep running back to the substance, but you can go back there on your own. And so if you meditate, if you put on to fill in, if you dance a certain way, and then you do that in your regular life, it's kind of psychedelically infused and that becomes your integration practice. 
now that said, also you'll have psychedelic insights, you know, and, and some of it is really mulling it over and saying, okay, like here's this, this intention that I had and how am I going to actualize it and make progress toward that, whatever it is, whether it's getting a new job or ending a relationship or whatever, before you run back to another ceremony or, you know, trip or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very well said. Very well said. What is, uh, what is teshuva? Teshuva is, it means like return. So, return. Okay. That's an important yeah. concept that I'm glad we're going to mention. Um, the, I mean, Sharon Salzberg says it all the time. The beauty of our human incarnation is that whenever we get lost, and say it quite like this, I'm adding to it, whenever we get lost, it be it just sitting in meditation and we're into some loop or just, out of sorts in our daily life, we always have the opportunity to remember, be here now, basically, return. We can mm -hmm. always return. So you say, I like this, teshuva, the return, is the recalibration of consciousness. That's good. That's really uh, right on. Uh, it, and it gives a lot of uh, optimism. It has a lot of optimism within it, doesn't it? that we can do this, that we are, you know, we don't have to judge ourselves when whatever thoughts, whatever emotions, whatever anger gets expressed, whatever reactivity, we can return to that, you know, wonderful, beautiful, silent and at ease place from which we can operate and in a much more balanced way, so... Teshuva. Yeah. Teshuva. Yeah. Like it reminds me of the Shuba. shofar, though. Do, 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 do. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds... I mean, there's also Rebbe Nachman, who's another Hasidic master, oh, yeah. of the yes. Baal Tov. Mm. He said something like, each breath is sort of an opportunity for teshuva, in that, like, you inhale, you exhale, like, the like you exhale the old and you inhale the new, and it's like you're kind of recreate, like, you're you're recreating life in each moment, right? It's like each breath is sort of like an opportunity to just start again. Um, you know, the dead moment has passed and the new moment is being born. And at every point we can make shuva, like we can always return home mm. to the breath. And, you know, again, it's, it's sort of our umbilical cord to God, you know, in yeah. the Hebrew, um, nishima, which means breath is related to this word for soul, nishama. And I think also in, Hinduism, I mean, people refer to Hanuman as the breath yeah. of Ram. Yep. So, Same thing. Just, you yeah. know, we go back to that. There is only one, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's beautiful. The, uh, and there is a, some lovely stuff in, in referencing the breath, which is the most powerful way for us to be able to get to that, back to that place, which I just described, which we all describe in that. And, you know, that's where that ineffability that we experience with psychedelics, you're right, that creates a memory, you know, and, uh, and that can easily be recalled up in just normal circumstances. And I think that's part, part of the, there should be some pra integration uh, process. There should be some practices that, that's what I think we want to develop with this uh, 
this Psychedelic Insight Science and Spirituality Summit is, you know, what are some of the practices that we can create around these anchors, like, of course, breath, um, like song, like movement, that, uh, as you say, immediately recall and allow us to do the return. Well, I'm literally writing a book about that right now. A second, another book. You are? On a, as sort of, yeah, inspired by Ram Dass, because you know how Ram Dass, uh, when he was Richard Alpert, um, wrote the psychedelic experience. Yeah. You know, like the manual based off the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So I'm, I'm working on a Jewish psychedelic manual. So, Jewish you know, psychedelic Dass, Book of the Dead. <laughs> Something. Right. Of the, of the living. Of, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, basically Ramdas was no, he looked to religion as part of like the a way of understanding, navigating, preparing, integrating psychedelic experience. And so can we do that? Um, you know, we could, you could fill in, the, it doesn't have to be only Jewish. It's, you know, but using be here now and also the philosophies that I know, um, and practices I know from Judaism and Hinduism and, and so mm, forth as, great. um, practical techniques for preparing, navigating and integrating psychedelic experience. Oh, that's perfect. Okay. You'll tell me more offline about that. And uh, that's something we, we very much want to offer, you know, through Love, Serve, Remember Foundation. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been wonderful, Madison. This is the only way I get to hang out with you these days because you're flying around the world here. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm glad we were able to. And everybody, uh, Exile and Ecstasy, it'll be a link in the show notes. You're fading away into the dark. I know, I've got to turn on the light. No, no, it's okay. We're at the end. Um, And, uh, yeah, so you'll be able to uh, get the book through the links and link up with uh, Madison. You'll send us a couple of things like, you know, articles that that people Mm -hmm. might be interested in. Through, yeah. through a website, or and Madison was also the uh, co-founder of the magazine Double Bind, so a psychedelic magazine which has done some great work as well. So thank you, thank you for everything you're doing, and you're reintroducing me a little bit into the um, a little bit of teshuva for me <laughs> for. Uh, Jewish mysticism. You keep referring to religion, by the way. Every time you say religion, you know that my whole body it goes, it's recoils. Like I never use that word. I use, well, I, it's not never, but I, it's always around spirituality. Well, they're different things. Yeah. Okay, yeah, we'll like- have to do a podcast around <laughs> that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, religion is what you do with your body. Religion is the you. My father is uh, religious about being a vegetarian. He's religious about doing yoga every day. He's religious about meditating every night. That's, um, that's his religion. Yeah. So okay, but I would say the same thing. I am. I am spirit. This is you know the hypocrisy of people. I am spiritual. I am doing my meditation every day. I am religious. I am spiritual. Okay. Uh, to me, it's uh, this nomenclature. But we'll we'll do another thing around that. And I can't wait to see what you're working on uh, this book because it's exactly what we want to share with people, representing Ramdas's perspective, which you just outlined uh, pretty much. So, thanks. So yeah. Thank much, you, Raghu. Thank you. We'll speak to you all next week on 
Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and just catch all of the wonderful podcasts. See ya. See ya.